do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Coastal turn with me to First John chapter five verses six through twenty will be our text this morning. And um, I should say this before we dive in. I do want to just say thank you, uh, thank you Yorktown. This um, Amy and I've been here for two years at the Yorktown campus doing family ministry, and this has been the best church family we've ever been a part of. It's been the best. And um, just to see God's grace in our student ministry and, and how incredible these students are in our college ministry and uh, just young people coming alive, coming to know Jesus and then growing in their love for Jesus has been one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life. And so um, I just want to say thanks. All right. First John chapter 5, verses 6 through 20. We have kind of an abbreviated time in the Word this morning. We have a ton of ground to cover. You see, there are a lot of verses here. So let me just lay out my plan. As we close this series that we've been walking through this summer, we're going to approach this passage and treat it almost like a summary of the whole letter. You'll see in your notes, there are three different categories. I'm going to call them assurances of a true Christian that John lays out in this text. And while there are certainly some interesting theological verses and questions in this passage, I just want to offer a disclaimer right off the bat. Time will not permit us to answer every question you might have about 1 John 5. Believe me, I think that would be a ton of fun, but our Coastal Kids workers are not a fan of two-hour services. So we're going to go pretty quickly this morning. And really, my task is really just to present to you John's closing exhortation, his final challenge for Christians. And as we've been seeing over the past couple of months, this final appeal will include some healthy and at times convicting self-examination. In chapters 1 through 4 of 1 John, John has been defining for us what a true Christian looks like. So a true Christian is someone who walks in the same way in which Jesus walked, chapter 2, verse 6. Someone who doesn't make a practice or a lifestyle of sinning, chapter 3, verse 4. And even as we saw in our time of the word last week, a true Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ from chapter 5, verse 1. We've said this over and over again at this point in the summer. Our goal in 1 John is to look at this book to hold it up against our lives and to see whether or not our lives have been transformed, truly changed by Jesus. We're testing ourselves. And this is a, a good and I think healthy practice for Christians. Paul says so in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. The Bible says this, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And we're going to do that in a real way one more time this morning. But, and here's my disclaimer, that is not going to be our main focus today. Testing ourselves, examining ourselves won't be our main focus. Instead of examining the evidence of our faith, we're going to close this series really simply by just looking at the object of our faith and seeking and savoring the assurance that Christ provides us with. 
I'm hoping that these few minutes will just be a really encouraging time for Christians because all we're going to do is just fix our eyes on Jesus to marvel together at Christ. And we're going to see this morning that our faith perseveres not because of the work that we do, Christian, but because of the work that God does in us. It's a key difference. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said in the 1800s that for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's dive in. First John 5, beginning in verse 6. This is the word of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. I want to pause here just for a second because this sentence can be a little confusing. When John writes that Jesus came by the water and the blood, most commentators, and this is where I land, agree that he's referring to the bookends, the beginning and the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so the beginning of his earthly ministry, he was baptized, and then his disciples had a baptizing ministry. Then at the end of his ministry, he was crucified, so water and blood. In chapter 5, John's been saying who Jesus is, He calls him the Christ of God, the anointed one in verse one. And now in our passage today, John is telling us what Jesus did, a baptism ministry and shedding his blood on the cross. So let's keep tracking end of verse six. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he's born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him to be a liar, but he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. Let's pause again just for a minute. John is saying that God has a testimony for us, that God has a testimony for mankind. And This is backwards to us. Usually we think about ourselves as having a testimony, a story of how God saved us. But in this case, God is about to testify to us, church. And I can't oversell this. He's about to testify to us literally the greatest truth of all time. Like the most important truth of all time. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And I want you to underline verse 12. I'll put it in your notes too. Whoever has the son has what, church? Life. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And so according to God's testimony, according to the word of the Lord, the way to have eternal life is to have God's son, to have Jesus. And whoever has Jesus has life. And whoever does not have Jesus does not have life. Listen, church, this is really is the most important issue that any of us will ever face. It's the most important question we'll have to answer. Whether or not you have the son, whether or not you have Jesus, will be dependent upon where you spend eternity. Like our eternal life hinges on this fact, whether we have the son or whether we don't have the son. And I wanna let you in on something. When your time comes, when my time comes to stand before God on that day, we won't be concerned or worried or anxious about the things that we are concerned and worried and anxious about here on August 6th, 2023. 
we'll have a bigger perspective. Like right now, I get it. We have so many things that are consuming our minds. If you're in high school, maybe you're worried about your GPA or getting into the right school. If you're a little older, maybe you're worried about climbing a ladder at your company or what vacation to take next or running your business or wondering, worried about whether your retirement account has enough in it for you to retire comfortably. But listen, on that day when we go and stand before God, none of it will be on our minds. The only thing that will matter is whether or not we have the Son, whether or not we have Jesus. I had the chance to secondhand experience this in a little bit of a way about a year and a half ago. So um, I've shared this with some of you. My grandfather, godly man, died about a year and a half ago. Um, he lived a full life in his 90s, incredible family. Um, yeah, he had a godly wife who's married for over 60 years, an incredibly successful career. He helped build IBM, worked at IBM for four decades, had a great golf game, was really funny. Um, I just loved being around him. Everyone in our family loved him. He was the patriarch of our family, and he loved the Lord. And what happened was he was in his 90s. He caught pneumonia, and the doctors made it clear he had days, possibly hours to live. And so the, my mom called every one of the grandkids, every one of the cousins, and from all over the country, we, we basically all flocked to my grandfather's deathbed. That alone was God's grace, really, getting a chance to say goodbye to him. And I got a chance in Lewis, Delaware, where he and my grandma lived, to have really a last conversation with him. I got a one-on-one -on -one with my grandfather. I think I was the only cousin that got that privilege is because I was the favorite because I was the only one to give him great grandkids. Um, so if you're watching, family, catch up. Um, but we had, uh, we had, and honestly, I'm smiling because it was a joyful time. I got to sit with him for about half an hour and no one else was in the room. And I knew this is probably the last conversation I was going to have with my grandfather. And I wanted to share some of it. It was an intimate moment to be sure, but I wanted to share some of it really because it gives us a picture of what's important in that moment. So in that moment, really the last day of my grandfather's life, we didn't talk about his golf game. We didn't talk about his favorite NFL team. We didn't talk about his career. We didn't talk about legacy. We didn't talk about any of the things that you might think that we would have talked about. We didn't even talk about his family on that day. No, we spent half an hour rehearsing the truths of the gospel and ensuring that he had the son. Because the Bible says, whoever has the son has life. And my grandfather knew that only hours from going to meet God, the only thing that was important to him was to make sure he had the son. And so we sat there for half an hour and just read scripture after scripture that promised that he who has the son has life, church. That's what mattered to him. That's how he ended his time on earth. And then I know when he go and when he went to meet Jesus, he was welcomed into his arms because he had the son. Listen, this will apply to every single one of us at some point. Whether you have the son or not will determine whether you have life. And on that day, the Bible makes it clear, there will be a separation of people who have the son and they will go to eternal paradise and people who do not have the son and they will go to eternal separation. And so this is our big issue, our big picture, John's emphasis this morning and mine. We have to make sure we have the son. We have to make sure we have Jesus because whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so if this is our all-important question this morning that I think two questions naturally follow. Number one, how can we come to have the Son? How can we come to have Jesus? If we need to have him, 
This is an all important issue. We need to know how to have him. And number two, what does it mean to have the son? Let's take them one at a time. Number one, how can we come to have the son? I think John answers this for us in the very next verse, verse 13. If your Bible is like mine, it probably has these passage breaks where paragraphs are uh, and these editorial headings that try to summarize the scripture that's about to follow. I, I want to remind us, these headings and paragraph breaks can be good and helpful, but they're not the work of the original writers. And sometimes they're great. Sometimes they do us a little bit of a disservice. I think they don't help us here. Because verse 13 is not a new thought from verse 12. Verse 13 is how John answers verse 12. Verse 13 in 1 John 5 is explaining to us, you can see it in your Bibles, how we can come to have the Son. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. So how can we know we have eternal life? How can we come to have the Son? The text says it, we believe We believe in the name of the Son of God. We believe in the name of Jesus. Now, we touched on this last week. This kind of belief isn't some intellectual assent type of belief. It's different from the way that you might believe that mint chocolate chip ice cream is the best flavor of ice cream. It's an accurate belief, but there's a different kind of belief. Or that you might believe that pineapple on pizza is an abomination. You could believe that, but that belief isn't changing your life. No, Pastor John talked about this last week. When the Bible says believe, we are believing into. This biblical kind of belief is an all-encompassing trust, a belief that leads to action and inevitably changes our lives. And we've worked this language out at Coastal many times. And so when we're sharing what we must believe, when we're sharing the message of the gospel, it's become really clear what we mean, the core facts of the gospel. We believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. And then what do we do with that gospel? We repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel, and we receive Christ into our lives, as John 1 talks about. This is so important. So if you're coming in here and you just want to know how to get your sin forgiven, this is your step. You repent of your sin, believe in the message of the gospel, and you receive Christ into your life. Now, church, here's what happens when someone does that. They go from being someone who doesn't have the Son— someone who's still under the condemnation, still worthy of the penalty of their sin, to someone who does have the Son. Someone who has Jesus is now forgiven, freed, and covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that's number one, how we can have the Son. We believe in the message of the gospel. Now question number two, what does it mean to have the Son? Because you can have a lot of things. You can have a bad day. You can have a great breakfast. What does it mean to have the son? John's obviously talking about something more here. And so this might give us some handles. In the 1980s, a movie came out called A Passage to India, directed by David Lean. This was back in the 80s where if you wanted to watch a movie, you use this really, really high-tech piece of technology called a VCR. Anyone heard of a VCR? Yeah, okay, those people that raise their hands, they also used to go to Blockbuster to rent their movies. So in the 80s, if you wanted to go to Blockbuster, rent this movie, pop it in your VCR and wait for it to load, you could do that. And honestly, incredible story. So in Passage to India, tells a story of a young Indian doctor, a young Indian doctor, a kind, good man, who had been arrested for allegedly assaulting a young English woman. And the case became this explosive point of tension between the Indian people who longed for independence 
and the colonial English government. And the whole colonialist power structure seemed to make the doctor's case hopeless. Even though everybody knew this guy was above reproach, there's no way he would have assaulted this woman. But because of the system of the day, he was just languishing in prison, awaiting a trial that wouldn't have been fair simply because he was Indian and too poor to afford a lawyer. But then here's what happens. The most famous, skilled, hotshot lawyer in all of India gets word of his case. And this guy is a superstar, and he has this reputation of taking on the British and standing up for the Indian underdogs. And one of the most profound scenes in the movie is when two of the doctor's friends come running to him in the prison to tell him, this famous lawyer got word of your case, and he's decided to represent you. And almost as if it were too good to be true, he then says, and he's going to do it for free. He's not even going to charge a fee. Now, track with me. Now the Indian doctor has a lawyer. Now he has a lawyer. The lawyer's going to do his thing for the doctor. All of his reputation, all of his eloquence, all of his legal skills will now be used in defense of the doctor. Now, why would the lawyer do this? Two reasons. One, to glorify his own legal skills so that everyone could see he is the best lawyer. The second reason is to free this doctor from oppression. And how does the doctor come to have the lawyer? The lawyer makes a free offer The doctor believes it and trusts it. Now he has the lawyer, he believes the lawyer can do it, and he has the lawyer because he trusts the lawyer. Listen, church, we have Christ in the same way. When we trust in Jesus, all that is good in Jesus is now done for our sake, which is stunning. We are languishing in prison and Jesus, who desired to make his own glory famous and to free his people from oppression, has come to represent us as our advocate, as our mediator, as our propitiation. And now all that Jesus does is attributed to our account. We are now perfect because of Jesus, covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And so how does someone come to have him, believe in the message of the gospel? What does it mean to have the son, to have Jesus? It means that everything that Jesus does, he does it for his glory and for our sake. And now his performance is counted as ours. Amen. It's good news about why we need to have the Son. Now, if you're sitting here wondering whether or not you have the Son, here's how I want to spend the remainder of our time. Verse 13 tells us, John wants us to know. John wants us to know. And we talked about this at the very beginning of this series a couple months ago, that we're not supposed to doubt our eternal life. God wants us to know. And so, the remainder of our time, I'm going to offer us three assurances, three assurances, and I use that word intentionally. I'll explain it at the end. Three assurances that if you have repented of your sin and believed in the message of the gospel, you do indeed have Christ. Now, you have these in your notes, and we're going to fly through them pretty quickly, and I'll tell you why. Each assurance has actually already been covered in a previous message in this series. Some commentators have even said that every verse in 1 John can be broken down into one of these three categories. And I think that this holds true for our conclusion today. And so we'll get practical with each of these two. I want to give you something to hold on to and go home with. So number one, the first assurance that we have the Son is social assurance. In other words, we can be assured that we have the Son based upon how we love others. How we love others, especially we'll see this in our text today, how we love those in the church. So let's keep tracking in our passage. After making it clear that those that have the Son have access to God in prayer, which is a miracle in and of itself and a whole sermon for another day, 
John writes this in verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, what's John saying here? What is the sin that does not lead to death? Most scholars agree that the sin that doesn't lead to death, mentioned here in verse 16, is the sin of the believer. The sin of the Christian that still entangles the Christian in the midst of their sanctification process. Now, let me explain what I mean here. We know that when we first put our faith in Jesus, when we first come to have the Son, we are justified instantly and immediately declared righteous. But then after justification, the process of sanctification begins. The lifelong journey for the Christian, we progressively become more and more like Christ. But during that process, we still sin. There's no perfect Christian in this room, amen? We literally are all works in progress together, which means, side note here, if you're looking for a church home, looking for somewhere to worship and call your own, and you're coming in here and thinking, I am not righteous enough for these people, I'm not holy enough for these people, I don't have my life put together enough for these people, then listen, you will fit right in here at Coastal. Because we're all in that sanctification process. The good news is that process will one day be made complete. Philippians 1.6 says this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Which means that our sin here on earth, Christian, as much as we hate it and fight it and wrestle it, our sin on earth will not have the last word over our lives. And it won't end in death for us because, again, we've been covered by Jesus. But here's the thing. Even though our sin as believers won't end in death, we are still called to love each other enough to fight it. And there's an urgency here. Because as we've seen this summer in 1 John, a lifestyle of consistent and habitual and unrepentant sin points to someone who doesn't truly have the Son at all. And that's the context of verse 16. We're to watch over our brothers and sisters and pray And then act when we see them entangled in sin. Now, I'm just going to state the obvious. Like, this is really, really hard to do. Like, this is messy and awkward and uncomfortable, and it requires an insane amount of vulnerability. It requires a willingness to lovingly and gracefully confront and a willingness to be lovingly and gracefully confronted. But I'm telling you, having someone like that in your life will accomplish great things for you in your sanctification process. I have a brother in my life, and we do phone calls every month or so, and he's got total access into my life. He checks in on my marriage and my parenting, every sin struggle he knows about. And he's called me out. He's rebuked me before, and I've done the same for him. But I can't tell you how valuable that relationship is in my life, knowing that there's someone who's walking out 1 John 5 for me. And listen, this is just a tool for us, a tool that God gives us in our journey towards holiness. Imagine imagine that that our culture right now is like a river, a river that is very evidently flowing away from holiness and righteousness, flowing away from God. God has put us as Christians in the river like salmon to battle against the current and to try to swim upstream. What happens when salmon stops swimming? They are swept away by the current. And so think about this in your own life, Christian. If you're not actively pursuing holiness, you won't drift towards holiness. We don't drift towards godliness and righteousness. 
This principle applies in our marriage. If we're not intentional about our marriage, our marriage drifts the way that culture is drifting. If we're not intentional about godly parenting, our parenting and our kids drifts the way that culture is heading. The same principle applies in our sin struggle. If we are not diligent about killing our own sin, we will be swept away. And John warns us about this. And so here's the question for us. As a church, are we willing to care for each other's souls over each other's feelings? Which again, is hard. How do we do this at Coastal? We have something called small groups. Because in a gathering of this size, we're not standing up and confronting each other over our own sin. We're not repenting of our sin before one another. But in the best small groups, there is room and grace for intentional godliness and partnered sanctification. And when we do that, we fight sin together, it provides us with a social assurance that we truly are in Christ and that we truly do have the Son. All right, number two, the second assurance that John offers us in this passage is moral assurance. So the first one, social assurance, really how we love. The second one, moral assurance, it's how we live. How we live. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning does not keep on sinning. Now, John isn't saying here that our Christian lives have to be perfect. We've covered that in other weeks in this series, but he is saying that one of the best ways to ensure that we have the Son is to make sure that our lives aren't characterized by habitual and unrepentant sin. And listen, and I want to say this with all the, the pastoral sensitivity in the world. If you're here this morning and you are feeling beaten down by sin, if you're here this morning and in a gathering of this size, I know this is some of you and you are exhausted with the fight against sin and you hate it. You're disgusted by it. Maybe there's that one sin that you just can't seem to shake and you hear a series like this this summer and talks about how true Christians will live for Christ and you're still fighting this sin and you're thinking, I can't shake this sin. I don't know if I'm actually saved and listen with all my heart. Let me encourage you just for a second. If you're here this morning and you hate your sin, that is one of the best vital signs that you are in Christ because a lost person does not hate their sin. Your hatred of your own sin is a Holy Spirit-inspired gift. It's called conviction. So if you're in here this morning and you're beaten down and tired and exhausted by your own sin, know this. The fact that you hate it, the fact that you are still fighting and struggling means that you're in Christ. So be encouraged. Again, we looked at this. God will win. God will accomplish the work that he began in you. And there will be a day when you won't have to struggle anymore. There'll be a day when that fight is over and we exist in perfect peace with Jesus with no presence of sin. And on the other hand, let me talk out both sides of my mouth here for a second. If you're in here this morning and you profess Christ and you don't hate your sin, then that's where the alarm bell should start to go off. If you are indifferent towards your sin, if you feel no conviction over your sin, if you're even known for your sin, then the Bible's clear. You might not actually know Jesus Paul says in Romans 6, we are those who have died to sin. How can we go on living in it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are new creations in Christ. A new creation can't tolerate unrepentant and continual habitual sin. And so again, here's the point. We're not expecting perfection, 
God knows we won't be perfect this side of heaven, but we are expecting, the Bible expects authenticity. If someone were to look at our lives, every aspect of our lives, would they see that we truly and genuinely know and love Jesus. I've been watching a show on my Blockbuster video account um, called Quarter, just kidding, it's Netflix. I'm just making sure y'all are still awake. Um, called Quarterback. Um, and it's, a, it's a good show. It, it follows three NFL quarterbacks, Marcus Mariota, Kirk Cousins, and Pat Mahomes. It gives you this inside scoop into the life of an NFL quarterback. And the, I mean, the cameras are with them at their homes as they're interacting with their wives and their kids. They're with them at 5 a.m. as they're hitting the weights. They're with them at midnight as they're doing their film study. And I just remember watching one episode thinking, these guys are obsessed with football. Like they live and breathe football so much that it affects their marriage, it affects their parenting, it affects their free time. Everything they do is centered around football. And we get this, this behind the scenes glimpse into, man, they really do care. More than just Sundays and practice, everything in their lives is devoted to football. Now, bear with me for this incredibly cliche pastoral illustration. If someone were to follow you around with a camera, what would they walk away thinking that you love? Like, what would it be, man? Someone followed you around with a camera and looked at your marriage. Do you glorify Christ in how you talk to your wife? Do you glorify Christ in how you lead her as Christ loves and leads the church? Wives, do you glorify Christ in how you submit to your husbands? Kids, how are you submitting to your parents? How are we glorifying Christ in our workplaces? Like, is this a Sunday thing for us or... Man, if we went behind the scenes and saw how you drive on 64 and how you wait in line at the grocery, like are we the aroma of Christ to a watching and dying world? We want to be authentic followers of Jesus. That's our mission statement here at Coastal. And so that's the test. It's really the assurance that if we are following, striving to follow Jesus in every aspect of our lives, imperfectly but authentically, that's a sign that we have the Son. Number three, theological assurance. The third assurance, piece of assurance that John offers us from this passage, first was social, second was moral, third one, theological assurance, what we believe. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Listen, I'll make this one super easy. We can be assured that we have the son because he has given us understanding that this word is truth, that his word is true and that we have believed it. Back in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So three assurances, Coastal. Social, how we love, moral, how we live, theological, how we, or what we believe. Now, I want to invite the band back up. We're going to close here in a second, but I want to show us just one more thing from this passage. I've used the word assurance here, and that's been really intentional. We focused a lot this morning, a ton this morning, on the importance of having the Son. And the assurance, signs in our lives that point to the fact that we do indeed have the Son. Look back at verse 18. We covered the first part of it, but I want to park here on the last part. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. This he in verse 18 is Jesus. And we see here a promise. I would even say an assurance 
that in the midst of this testing and self-examination, Jesus will protect us. And so here's where I want to land this morning. Church, at the end of the day, we want to make sure we have Jesus. As we said, there's nothing that's more important. But above all, I want to encourage you and send you out of here knowing that Jesus has you. And that's far more important. Because the hand of Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus began your salvation, and Jesus will see your salvation through to the end. Like, I want us to walk away this morning knowing that before the foundations of the world, if you're in Christ, that God shows you to be his special possession. That God loves you and really God likes you. The scriptures say that God delights in you. That God will see your sanctification process through so much that he's guarding you, he's guarding the inheritance that he's given you until one day you come to meet him face to face in glory. And I want to end our time really just knowing and Thanking God for the fact that our walk with Christ is secure, not because of our performance, but because of his. It's because of him. So here's how I'm going to end our time. It's going to be a little bit different. Actually, I want to encourage us to stand um, Yeah, right now. So if you're able, would you stand with me? We're going to sing here in a minute, but I don't have a story or illustration to close our time. I want to do something a little bit different. I want to leave with our focus purely on Jesus and the assurance and the preserving power that Jesus has over his saints. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read three or four passages of Scripture. And together we're just going to give thanks for them. And so as I read them, be reminded this is the Word of God. And I'm going to read and leave and really end our, our sermon series. We're going to walk to 1 John all summer. I want to end on a note of thanksgiving because God ultimately is the one that ensures that we are saved. Does that make sense? All right. It's John 10, verses 27 and 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What's Jesus saying in John 10? He's saying that he is holding you, Christian, in his hand and that no one is stronger than he is, that no one is able to snatch you from his hand. That includes yourself. You are not strong enough to snatch yourself from the almighty, all-powerful hand of God. He has you. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, we've talked about this already, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so even if you are in the absolute valley this morning, know this, God will not leave you there. He will finish the work that he in his grace began in you. He will do it. He's faithful to do it. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is communicating to us in this passage that God is the reason you know him and that God is the reason you will always know him. So praise be to God. Praise be to God. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So get this church, in the testing, in the self-examining, we have to have the foundation that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord.
So, Father, we praise you for those sweet, precious truths this morning. We praise you for your grace this morning. We praise you, God, for your preserving power this morning that you have caused us to be born again to a hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and fading not away. So God, I just pray for this room. I pray for this gallery, for this local church, Lord Jesus. I pray that uh, if the Spirit needs to convict, He would do so. That there would be room for real and genuine repentance this morning. But God, I pray for many of us here today, Lord, that after the examining and the self-testing, we would take 10 looks at Christ and that we would praise God and give God the glory because ultimately we are safe and secure, not because of evidence in our lives, but because of the work of Jesus. So we thank you for Jesus. And so I pray now, God, that as we sing this song, that it would be an overflow of the joy that you have put in our hearts as we give thanks for Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.